Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Donovan Cleckley, who is a grad student studying literature, specifically Victorian and early modern literature. And he has been working a lot on the internet, involving himself in the nuances of the transgender and homosexual and gender critical discourse and making sense of the various different arguments within the various different camps, and I think it's fair to say that his position, broadly speaking, and we get into this more, is that gender non-conforming children should not be pressured to transition, and pushing gender non-conforming children toward medicalization is actually a great disservice to them. We get into that. We also get into the difficulty of presenting these arguments towards people who have accepted transgender ideology or purely affirmative care as the proper course of action and any deviation from affirmative care as a form of bigotry. We argue against that and also explore his life as a human being who uh, is very unique in his own special way. So without further ado, here is Donovan Cleckley. What are you focusing on in your uh, collegiate endeavors? Um, well, I mostly... I mostly deal with um, with literature by women, um, but the particular the particular time period that that I like studying is you know of course the eighteen hundreds the Victorian era, but I love um, I particularly love modernism, uh, and so so that would that would encompass writers like Gertrude Stein um, and Virginia Woolf and. You know, of of course, T. S. Eliot, some some of the others, um, and so so yeah, I do I do quite love um, Stein and and Wolf, and hmm. so those are those are some. Do you have any ideas about um, the shifting uh, conceptualization of the female uh, going from Victorian to modern era? I would I would suppose that there's been there's been differential representations of what it is to be a woman, and particularly like we think about I'd have to I'd have to look up pieces on it, but um, there's the idea of the new woman and of of you know coming into modern era um, this the you know moving out of moving out of the Victorian era where women were mostly you know mostly confined to domestic space where they were confined to the private sphere. Um, with with the development of and, and you know this speaks to industrialization, increasing industrialization, women moving moving somewhat out of the private sphere into the public sphere. So so there there is a change in the positionality of women um, with relation to with relation to their status on the basis of sex and on the basis of economics, but. But I would say I would say the representations and literature they've you know they've been varied, 
and and I think that when we look at say a lot of a lot of pieces during during the nineteenth century, we get an idea of you know of different ideas of or, or different notions of you know masculinity and femininity and what these mean as they are associated with men versus women what the particular ideals have been um and and it's and of course it's one of those things that you know it it shifts also do you have your kitty (laughs) he is (laughs) gonna be interrupting us a whole lot so (laughs) no i love kitties yeah, you can probably hear him motoring. Yes, I love kitties. <laughs> How do you think um, studying literature informs or could inform us right now when we think about gender, when we talk about gender in this day and age where we have this construct of gender that is infinitely malleable? Well, I think that there's there is a problem in how, in how people think about gender. And I think in some ways people, people think about it from this very, um, I think it's a sort of, it's a lack of analysis or a lack of thinking about what it is and how it is. And people, people often, you know, when, what I think literature does for people for, for really anyone is I mean at first first it sort of brings us to a closeness with the humanity of the of the writer whom we're whom we're reading good literature does that and yet I also think that when it comes to gender something about you know reading reading about the social relations between the sexes such as during the Victorian era and and even earlier, there's something about it that it shows you it shows you how 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 it is social and it's not something that is like that that everyone just like that that in many ways you know when you when you look at when you look at people interacting for example in in Trollope's the small house at Allington you see you see you know Mrs. Dale who's the mother feel concerned because she wants her daughter's Lily and Lily and Belle to be married off to you know to um, men such that they can such that they can have safety and security and wealth and and so so there's ways in which you know and and you don't see that kind of concern about men there there aren't there you know the mothers aren't saying well I've got to marry my son off to a nice you know to a nice woman who will give him safety and security and whatnot it's often it's often different and there are cases where men where men you know in in this era marry you know wealthy women and do end up with with the wealth uh and and do you know get get a large sum of money but it's not it's not quite um you know it's not it's not quite i i think that what what i find most most interesting at least with with gender and with how people think of gender now is it so it's so very it's very individualistic in some ways and i think that 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 disturbs me because people say well it's special to me and and i'm an individual and it's so special and i don't want anybody to tell me about it and make me feel like i'm not special 
And of course, you know, I, I think that people people want to feel special. They want to feel like their their identities and and this that and the other are are so special. And and nothing nothing in the world, you know, nothing in the world influences you and and makes you makes you become what you are or makes you feel the way that you do. And and so there to me there's a there's an enormous negationism going on hmm. with to how how people see the self in relation to society because I think that I think that the problem is that there is there is this there is this dialogic relation between the self and society that doesn't mean that there's not you know there's not biology at play I think that I and I tell people I think that it's entirely false to argue that you know we we have that we have to either choose biology or sociology that we either have to choose psychology you know or or sociology these sorts of things i think that you can actually see the interactions among you know the biological factors the psychological factors the sociological factors and and people often don't want to think about it in this way they want to think you know they want to think Ah uh, well, so so to to talk about something being socially constructed, they they think oh so it means that it's all social and that there's nothing nothing biological about it that there's nothing, you know there's nothing, nothing related to brain development these sorts of things and that's silly, because of course biology biology is present we we live in our bodies. We are at once physiological and psychological. There's there's not a way to neatly separate the physiological from the psychological. They're they're enmeshed, hmm. and so that that's one reason why. Also, I would add that I I admire the work of Friedrich Nietzsche because one of his one of his you know points of view is he he. He sees the body as intertwined with how we are, how how we think. So the the physio the physiological is at once, you know, it's related to the psychological. So they're not they're not neatly separable in, in this way. They're 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 both they're both brought together. Mm-hmm. And so so that's that's how. And I think that literature it can it can give us an insight into you know into how how social how external factors relate to the development of individuals hmm. and what they mean as they as they press down upon people as they make them as they make them feel the way that they do in society and i mean existence existence isn't this you know completely completely fun and simple and easy thing mm-hmm and I love your kitty so much. <laughs> He's so precious. <laughs> He's just going and going. Well, I we interacted first. I believe we crossed paths when you asked to transcribe a one of my interviews. I can't remember which one it was, the first one you did. It was a year ago or so, perhaps. I know you did the Abigail Schreier know. interview, but I think you did another one, too. Anyways. I think the first one I did was, I did the one where you talked with Dr. Lisa Littman and Sasha okay. Ayad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so what, 
what is your interest in that, in specifically in the gender critical and the transgender um, space? I suppose my interest lies in the concern that I've had um, with regard to, you know, children and young people who are who are gender nonconforming, and you know who who more often than not are lesbian, gay, and bisexual. And I saw I saw how people people are being promoted this sort of idea that you know if you're male and if you're not masculine enough that it means that it means that you're female and if you're if you're female you're not feminine enough means you're male and mm. of course this is a this is an extremely reactionary idea and but but it's being you know it's being propagated as this sort of vanguard of of liberalism and of of progressivism and 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 this is this is simply not it, it didn't make sense to me you know what's and, reactionary about that could you well so so what i would what i would say is reactionary about it is for the longest time we i would say that feminist in particular but you know i'm i don't call myself a feminist but i would say that really feminist activism has been about, you know, and, and we can think about this going back to what was called second wave feminism, being about, you know, males being able to be non-masculine. Like males, males can be non-masculine. You know, they can, males can have a beer and watch sports, but they don't, they don't have to be, you know, aggressive and dominant and violent. They, you know, it, it, they can be human, really. They don't have to limit themselves. Females, they can, you know, they can, they can still wear makeup if they want, but they also shouldn't, shouldn't have to, they shouldn't have to wear corsets. They shouldn't have to bind their bodies. You know, they shouldn't have to do all these things to themselves. They shouldn't have to be passive and submissive and these sorts of things. That was what second wave feminism was arguing. It was arguing that the sexes should, should be able to, you know, to, to be, to be full human beings, to actually, you know, to not not feel limited within the constraints of, you know, something that says, oh, well, you know, a man is this, this, and this, and if you're not this, you're not a proper man. And a woman is this, this, and this, and if you're not this, you're not a proper woman. And that was all based on sex stereotypes. It was all, it was all about, you know, stereotypes that are associated with the two sexes. And so fast forward to today. The idea that we're giving young people, we're telling, we're telling them, well, if this little boy is very feminine and he's passive and he doesn't roughhouse like all the other little boys and he, and he plays with dolls and he wants to wear princess dresses. Well, if we, if we have this little boy and he's in, he's in progressive circles, many of them are going to think, well, this is a trans girl. They're going to think that's a trans girl. And what's what's horrible is the, the progressives will say, they'll, they'll tell you, oh, but no, I would never think that. Never think that, you know, I, I would never tell this little boy, you know, that he's not he's not doing it right or he's not he's being a little boy. Right. But 
it doesn't speak to the reality of what's going on, what's what's going on. And and I think that I think that it's not necessarily that it's either exclusively the fault of of conservatives or exclusively the fault of liberals. And, and I think that people people want to, you know, people mm. want to cast the blame on yeah. one or the other. And there there are ways in which both sides and really there's more than two sides. But both both of these groups interlock. And so, you know, whereas we have on, on the conservative end, there's this, you know, there there has been a sense that, you know, males are supposed to be masculine and females are supposed to be feminine. And anything that's not that, if it's seen as atypical, which atypical is not necessarily bad, but if it's seen as atypical, it's been traditionally policed or seen as something that, you know, it it has to be mm. fixed. Something is wrong and it has to be fixed. So here comes liberalism. Liberalism wants to be the vanguard, as usual. And what liberalism says is liberalism says, okay, well, so we know that we know that there are males who are feminine and there are females who are masculine over here. And we know that we know that you know uh, you know a large portion of these individuals feel discomfort because of course if you're male and you're non-masculine you're female and you're non-feminine of course of course you're going to feel discomfort when you're being told uh, that all of these things that masculinity is supposed to be for males femininity is supposed to be for females when you're told this since you're since infancy. Of course, it's going to impact you, impact you at least, you know, to some degree, psychologically. And so liberals, liberals say, well, we're not as bad as the conservatives because we're not trying to change your mind to, to match your body. We're trying to change your body to match your mind. <laughs> and this is precisely what liberals have done. And they've decided hmm. that they would just reverse what conservatives have done. And that it would work, and it would be great. And the bad part is that that both of the both of the paths that the two have taken have gone wrong. They're wrong, and and so so it's horrible that that liberals think that conservatives are the ultimate evil. Conservatives think liberals are the ultimate evil, and they both have collaborated in what has become harmful for you know so many children and young people. And, and I think that, you know, it's the problem with with right wing and left wing sort of political discourse, because it, what it is, is one side gets to say, oh, but haven't you heard what the other side did? And then the other side says, oh, but haven't you heard what that other side did? And the horrible thing is that neither of them are fixing their problems. <laughs> you know, not neither. Neither side fixes its issues. And and so it's it's as though you know it's it's like it's like there's a wall between them, and they have they have certain similarities, but they're they're constantly you know they're mm -hmm. constantly you know lobbing nonsense over at each other, yeah. and then they never can they never can understand that they both contributed, in many ways you know and and in in many different ways to to the, what I see as a social problem. Which is, which is, it's that, you know, as, as Abigail Schreier writes in Irreversible Damage, we have right now a sex ratio of 
children and young people seeking seeking you know pills and procedures to alleviate what is what is being diagnosed as gender dysphoria well this sex race ratio shows an enormous amount of of young of young people who are female females and, and it's completely disproportionate there's been an enormous rise in in these young women who are seeking you know not only seeking pills but seeking you know seeking double mastectomies under 18 sometimes under 16 as early as you know as early as 13 and it's it's absurd it's absurd that that it's you know that it's happening and that it's that it's being allowed to happen and that when when i talk about it i'm told well they feel so much distress why would we deprive them of of this procedure that is supposed to alleviate distress that they, they might just kill themselves is that a good argument is that a good argument no it's never been a good argument it's never been a good argument to say oh but really they're just distressed so just give them whatever i mean you you could make that argument for anything and if you make the argument oh well they'll kill themselves anyway that's not an argument for best practices mm-hmm. that's a horrible argument and and so you know this this way in which and so many so many liberals participate in it and the and and people who are supposed to be supposed to be supposed to be at the vanguard of reasoning you know the vanguard of of thinking about you know when we think of when we think of and of course like liberalism in in the political sense now differs from the the notion of classical liberalism philosophically but when we think about that and we think about you know enlightenment principles of you know empiricism reasoning logic you know that that you're not that you're not arguing on the basis of tribalism and of course as we know the left the left likes its tribalism as much as much so as the right likes its tribalism and and neither neither side seems to see that there's that there there are different tribalisms that are going on that are hurting people and that are that are really that are really causing problems well and one so, question so, is then let me put the cat in a tiny box so that because he's falling asleep on my shoulder so if everybody's in a deadlock a a tribalistic deadlock how do you propose that there's a middle ground i I guess we have to start with first first principles especially about gender now what's happening at a local school um is uh a psychologist at the local school is starting to feed to seed these LGBTQ um, pamphlets and discussions, and they're 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 about anti-bullying, they're about acceptance, but when you get into what gender is, it gets really wacky, and it's so. Uh, it's so tied up in being nice and accepting that there's no questioning because questioning itself 
could lead to marginalization, could lead these people who have the capacity, you know, you'll, you'll get all these uh, stats, you know, 35%, 50%, 40%, get bullied, harassed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that it's very difficult for one person to take the initiative and say, you know what, it's not okay. This is going too far. You want to push acceptance, but this is going too far. So how do you start to build an argument that very well-meaning people who in this day and age have a hair trigger for what they perceive of as bigotry, how do you, how do you ease them into a place where we can get back to rational uh, basics on what we're actually talking about when we talk about gender, when we talk about sex whether it's assigned or given, and the expressions that are appended to it, either naturally or through sociological forces? Well, I think that first, it seems as if everything, everything that is, you know, even, even slightly discomforting is being, is being construed as some kind of oppression. And and that that to me is destructive. It's destructive to to having to having any kind of dialogue. What I what I find so so ironic is that the people demanding that we have we have you know discomfort in dialogue and that we we learn to work through power and privilege and, and this sort of this sort of thing, right? These same people literally lose their minds over any discomfort they they lose their minds over over feeling you know what whatever sort of discomfort you know if you if you say well well i disagree with with this this point of view or that point of view they freak out and and so what's interesting is i I think that and of course schreier discusses it in her in her book too there's there's a way in which we can argue that all people should be treated with dignity and respect without without saying that like w- that we have to deny that that humans are male and female and it, it becomes it becomes strange that we've reached to a point where being where providing somebody with dignity and respect which all human beings deserve is being construed as okay. So we're going to start there, and then we're going to move right to denying human sexual dimorphism. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And and the horrible thing is, this notion of you know of dignity and respect, meaning that you have to literally change all of society around certain political ideologies, is insane. It's absurd. The the like to to say, oh well, well, so so we want to be we want to give everybody dignity and respect. We want to give everyone dignity and respect, right? So that means that you know we should we should enforce particular ideologies onto people, particularly onto children, and that you know, and 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 it goes back to so many so many of the issues that we're we're looking at. With regard to how children are, you know, how children are being told, uh, of course, being told really crazy nonsense about how how all of us have have gender identities and and what is your gender identity on a scale from, you know, GI Joe, to, Joe to, yeah. to to the to the to the Barbie, 
from from GI Joe to Barbie. What's your what's your gender identity? Are you born in the wrong body? You know, if you feel a little bit discomfort, should should we go ahead and get you some pills and and some procedures? And and this is this is really ridiculous. And it's to, to me there there is there is there seems to be a sort of profit motive behind it. You know, a, a way a way in which I mean because much of much of what is being propagated is so profitable it's very profitable you know i mean particularly with regard to um when we think about when we think about the the amount of money that is produced through particularly particularly the medicalization of children and young people who are who are seen as you know gender dysphoric mm-hmm. there's so much money to to be made in that that alone and then and then I just think that in some ways, in some ways, the the theories that are propagated in academia, they're very, they're very self-perpetuating. And they want, they want to keep it, they want to keep it going because you want to publish more papers. You wanna you wanna publish some more books, you wanna sell some more books, you wanna give some more talks, you wanna make some more, you know, you wanna make tens of thousands of dollars. And and so I think that often the the academics academics really are are the the snake oil salesmen and and they are because they they want they want to keep publishing and they want to keep writing the books and want to keep writing the articles and want to keep want to keep profiting i would have to add to that the activist um treadmill that's actually Mm. happening too. Uh, The pamphlets that I see that are being promulgated at the local grade school, so this is kindergarten to seventh grade, they're Mm -hmm. going to be influenced by these ideas. And the way that that these pamphlets are put together is that the teachers, whoever's ingesting this, needs to do a bunch of work and figure out their biases and, and, you know, pinpoint their privileges. Mm -hmm. And then through that nexus of guilt and shame and wanting to do better, they begin to just accept. They become very pliant, right? So my, my overarching point is that there are these manipulation tactics, but it's all funded by these activist groups. And these activist groups, they get a lot of funding, and then they need to get more funding. And they're always pushing the envelope. Because if they can come up with a new oppression, then they have a whole bunch more pamphlets and a whole bunch more seminars to give. So it is really a nested thing. There's a lot of motivations that are hidden behind this anti-bullying. If you don't go along with it, they're going to kill themselves. And then you look at the other end, the hidden end, the detransitioner end. You look at the other end of the people who do transition and it doesn't work out for them. Are you really selling body modification as a way to change a psychological difficulty or as a way to bypass human development? Now, I'm not saying that that's always the case, but if you can't even ask the question, for the, for the, a large part, you're offering these children this, uh, this kind of pseudo-spiritual landscape to you know, play around these games and develop themselves, but appended to that is a lot of other nasty things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think it's stunning in a, in a horrific way, astonishing, rather, how, you know, the commercialization of, of pills and procedures has become, has become rebranded as a civil rights movement. 
that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And it and it differs from every single other social movement in, in such a significant way in that this movement this movement generates so many profits for so many industries that are intertwined together. And in, for no other for no other social movement have have you had to have you had to fix the body to match the mind or well there's or um the lobotomy uh uh, um, pre- mm-hmm. not prerequisite, but the precedent that you brought up and Sasha Yad has brought up too. Yeah, with with lobotomies, they were it, it was a popular procedure in America during you know and and the well and and really really in the Western world during you know the the nineteen forties nineteen fifties. And despite criticism of the procedure and despite concerns about the ethics, here we go, the question of ethics, despite concerns about the question of ethics and the treatment of the patients, it was, it was propagated as, as effective, effective. And, uh, and of course it was effective. It made, it made a good few people into vegetables and and I mean it hurt plenty of people, and you know and and the thing about it is they you know they remarked upon, you know they would promote the cases that seemed successful. Well, it reduced it reduced ex patients distress, and and the and the logic behind this is well you know the so and so felt felt this degree of distress, and if we deprived the person of the right to a lobotomy that person would remain living in distress. And if we don't lobotomize the person, that person will die by suicide. Again, what kind of argument is that? It's a horrible argument. It always has been a terrible argument. The argument that, well, if we don't, if we don't perform such and such procedure on, on so-and-so, or if we don't give so-and-so such and such pills right now, that person will die by suicide. This argument is terrible, and 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 the and the the basic premise of that that sort of line of argument is it's it's using suicide as really it's wielding suicide as a weapon of coercion and of of social control, so of controlling people and saying, well, we can't question the procedure because if we do, someone will die because we're questioning it. Well, that that doesn't make sense, and, and the the whole point of bringing up the specter of suicide is is to suppress or to 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 silence and suppress all dissent. It's to you know it's to really numb people down and to keep them from from asking any sort of question. So, hmm. so if we talk about solutions, then we're we're outlining. And you've done a lot of work to do this, and I've done a lot of work, and probably the people who are watching this right now are keyed in pretty much on the basics of what's going on or are already concerned. But what do you see as the path forward? Uh, Maybe just say, if we bring it back to where we started sociologically in our conceptions of male and female and masculine and feminine, and how do we move our society towards a place where those – well, one, where gender isn't a place where people escape – Either to you know stand out or to wield power over other people or to um, I guess uh, 
maximize their confusion as something outside of them by blaming it on the system or, or whatever, using that as a landscape to explore the self. How do we push past that, uh, give people the ability to play around with that, be flexible with that, but at the same time not go overboard where we are now? My view is that individuals should be should be granted liberty to to be themselves. There 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 are people who do struggle with gender dysphoria and who you know who do who do take you know cross sex hormones who do you know choose to to undergo surgeries you know and and of course I'm I'm particularly speaking about you know people who are adults I do not I do not think that that young people children and young people should be undergoing the procedures or or taking or taking cross sex hormones why what's and, your argument for that then well my my argument for for that specifically is that for for children and young people they for one they haven't they haven't achieved really full cognitive development at all um you know the they're if you if you have somebody who's say as young as 13 how can how can you say that that person you know knows knows the full ramifications of of you know of taking of taking you know let's say puberty blockers cross sex hormones undergoing undergoing you know this surgery or that surgery it does not make sense and and the idea of children you know children and young people for example, being, you know, ending up, ending up infertile for the rest of their lives. That is a problem. And, and when you're, when you're 13, you do not think about, you know, whether, whether, whether or not you really, really want to have kids. That is not something that 13 year olds are, are just all thinking about. And, and they certainly don't have the frame of mind of somebody who is say 25 years old. That that is not something that's on the mind of a twelve-year-old or a thirteen-year-old, and when you when you feel distress, when when you when you're entering puberty and you're you're a teenager and you you feel you feel distress as so many teenagers do, it, it seems it seems ridiculous to sort of to be medicalizing all of this discomfort and to think you know to think oh well if any degree of discomfort it's it's somehow unnatural and that that you know all discomfort is wrong and that we have to that we have to immediately medicalize it and that we have to we have to we have to make sure that the discomfort goes away and this this kind of response to discomfort speaks to our society which is emphasizing you know it's it's a sort of it's a sort of trying to trying to insulate people and trying to you know trying to you know medicalize medicalize all the pain out of life so that there is no pain and 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 there's there's something there's something excessively dystopian about it you know so 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 dystopian about wanting to get rid of all the pain and 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 make sure nobody feels nobody ever feels pain even you know even in a society where people people were you know where people are I would say more egalitarian, where we where we treat each other with equality and with with respect and with dignity. Who's not to say that there would be no pain in that society? That that there would be no pain. 
I do not think so. I think that I think that pain is something that is part of that is something that human beings experience. And and it's not something that that we should always think, oh, so we need to we need to medicalize that. And we need to put that under under this under this this illness and we need to, you know, we need to we need to treat it right now and we need to we need to put the pills and procedures to it. The the argument I've heard with regard to with regard to children and young people who experience you know experience what is seen as as you know as the as the the distress of gender dysphoria this argument has been largely about well if we don't act when they're when they're as young as possible then when they're when they're adults that we won't be able to do anything about it this argument also seems ridiculous when you think about it, because it's saying, well, if, if we don't make the choice as soon as possible and we don't go ahead and do everything, then when they're older and they, they, they can think more and, and think about it, you know, perhaps perhaps in better terms, well, then, then they won't be able to, to think about it any better then. When, when, you, when you think about it and when you really, really think about it, the arguments that children and young people somehow, you know, that, that, that a 13 year old has, you know, has, has this perfect conception of, you know, of, of all of human life and of, of identity and of existence. Most people live their whole lives, you know, not really, not really like coming to terms with like what the ramifications are of, of, of all these, all these different things, including pills and procedures. So the idea that a 13 year old has, has achieved the fullest cognitive maturity it is it, it's it's ridiculous it doesn't make any sense and i would i would like to i would like to mention one thing that i that i found valuable about Schreier's book is she she discusses and i think this is something that deserves more exploration but she discusses how when you how how there how there are parallels that activists draw between what it is to have dysphoria and what it is to be sexually oriented toward the same sex. This is a parallel that it, that has been drawn repeatedly, saying, "Well, if you're if you're if you're opposed opposed to people being trans, you'd be opposed to people being homosexual being." being lesbian or being gay. And this is this is false too. This argument is is, is false because because why are they paralleling a medical condition, something that involves medical p- procedures that is, you know, that that can involve pills and procedures to homosexuality, which involves nothing. It doesn't involve pills and procedures. So the idea that they're comparing the two and that they're they're comparing two things that are completely not alike. Not neither of these are the same. One involves medicalization, the other does not. And and that and so so it it seems as though it's often that this this analogy is brought up. And it's a false analogy. It doesn't make any sense. It does really go back to uh what you were saying earlier about uh conservatives going too far towards uh, gender enforcement and liberals going too far in the same 
direction, only in a different path. And it all collapses down on conversion therapy, where conversion therapy, mm -hmm. if you look at it through one eye, the left eye, it's, uh, or whatever, it, one way, it's that we're trying to, you know, pray the gay way or, you know, enforce some sort mm -hmm. of change in the way that that person's brain and body are oriented in an erotic fashion and probably more than erotic fashion towards other people. We're going to try to go in there and turn that around. And then that is conflated, too, with conversion therapy about speaking the way through somebody's distress about being in the body or, or their body not aligning or the way that society treats them not aligning to how they feel or what all that stuff um, up to and including uh, the medical uh, procedures. But that conversion therapy is it, it, it kind of really encapsulates uh, the the taboos around the topic about we're, we're not going to try to change people. We're going to facilitate whatever they want in their sexuality and in this thing called gender. But if you really look at it, what is gender? I look at, I look at these programs. I look at these trainings. I look at this propaganda that is being seeded to a grammar school where pre pre kindergartner all the way up to 13 year olds are going to be now bashed in this stuff if you look at what gender is it's a bunch of feelings and expectations and stereotypes what is it really um and and how can you actually weave an entire ideology and then enforce that on an entire generation when it's really it, what is it even made of it, it's kind of made up you know, it trickled out of the academy and then it got uh, into the hands of the activists. And now it's just kind of spiraling out of control. And conversion therapy speaks to the speaks to what we what we discussed with regard to the the way in which the way in which it seems as if the right wing sees through different glasses than the left wing does but both but both groups and as i said there's there's many groups really but both groups seem to not understand that they're seeing always through particular glasses with 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 right-wing people what you what you have and and the the traditional way in which the term conversion therapy has been employed has been, you know, telling telling lesbian lesbian girls that they they should be straight, that they mm. should be feminine and straight, and that's what they should do. Whereas, you know, for for gay boys, it would be that they they should be, you know, they should be masculine and and straight. That that has been what what conversion therapy has meant. Now, it has been taken, you know, it, it what what it what it once meant, which it which it referred to practices that were homophobic and that were that were harmful, psychologically harmful for children and young people. What it what it now has been used to apply to is any any exploratory practice in, in terms of you know clinical practices that that help you know help children and young people actually you know work through work through anxiety and depression and you know degrees of trauma 
and you know issues perhaps past issues with eating disorders for so many for so many teenage females who go into therapy and who say I don't feel comfortable in my body and 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 so and so really what what's happening is careful therapy is being is being called conversion therapy mm-hmm. and and so and so people like people like Sasha Ayad who who advocate an exploratory approach to help children and young people even even people like um, Dr. Kenneth Zucker who who by no means is is somebody who who hates who hates any you know any any of his patients but simply because he he has suggested and as as other as other you know as as other clinicians have done has suggested that not all of these of these cases that are being being seen as you know as as people with gender dysphoria that not all of them need absolute medicalization immediately and as soon as or, possible yeah, or just uh, affirmation 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 yeah and and the the affirmative standard of care is it it, it is so destructive and that really really it is in a in a dystopian sense the affirmative standard is the affirmation of alienation it is it is a way in which you say well i recognize that there is that there is this this mind body you know this mind body dualism and 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 that is that is what it that is what it is predicated on is it, it approaches the patient by thinking okay so you have you have the wrong mind or you have you have a mind and it's in the wrong body and we have to fix the body to match the mind this is this is this is the premise of it it's it's not it is not about actually saying we want to help you we want to help you feel comfortable with your body and and pills and procedures give, giving people that it, it it is not promised it's not promised that people will feel comfortable with their bodies and of course, of course, I do not think that this, you know, with with regard to you know adults, I don't I don't think that I can necessarily you know I can necessarily enforce what adults choose to do with their bodies or, or you know whether or not whether or not this adult or that adult you know chooses chooses a particular kind of cosmetic surgery, these sorts of things. I don't think I don't think that we can necessarily we can necessarily enforce laws against it. As much as I do think that we should, we should talk about the medical ethics and talk about the ethics of the procedures. And if if we have more open studies that look at, you know, what are the harms and you know what what are what are the long term impacts of these of these surgeries? You know, do we have do we have patients who undergo you know certain procedures who say say a year later? don't feel good about it anymore or say five years later feel worse about it or say 10 years later feel twice as worse as they did five years ago what if what if we what if realistically the surgeries themselves are not are not totally helpful and 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 it it begs the question that we should we should be thinking about what does medicalization mean in the context of how we're approaching the treatment of what is seen as mental illness 
And uh, well, how how is it? How is it that we've arrived at this point historically in that in that we have this extreme degree of medicalization? And it's not it's not necessarily just with regard to gender dysphoria, but it's with regard to so many so many other issues, because, of course, you know, when we think about when we think about young women and, you know, suicide rates, rates of self-harm. You know, rates of you know rates of anxiety and depression, how they have how they have ballooned, and how these how these you know yeah. how these issues have become even worse over time. I think it I think it really it really does demand that we think we think about the ethics, we think about what's going on socially and culturally that that you know boys and girls feel the way they do. And of course, it, it, it intersects with, you know, social media, with, you know, with the current political environment, with, you know, with really a sort of consumer culture about about, you know, mental health. And well, if I, if I just if I just go get the, the pills and the procedures, it'll fix it and I'll be fine. And, and we, we, we tell this to people and we tell this to people who are vulnerable and we tell them that it will work. You know, society tells them that it will work, and when it doesn't work, what what have we done? We've done a grave disservice to people. We've done a grave disservice lying to them and not being realistic. Not being realistic that you know it doesn't mean you know when when you take when you take this pill or or you undergo this procedure, it also it also isn't a cure all. It doesn't mean that it will immediately fix fix something that is mental you know operating on the physical performing procedures on the physical does not mean that that any sort of change will be rendered to the mental state and and my concern my concern is that what if what if we're we're subjecting people to you know to irreversible damage pills and procedures that that leave them leave them feeling more dissociated from their bodies than previously. What if what if the what if the the treatment is only is only adding to the problem? So so what if what if it's what if it's really in itself self perpetuating? I saw I saw something the other night where somebody said, "What's so strange is that you know that that." People, people being treated with puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and the different surgeries that they also have to have to undergo extra health care because of the treatments that they're that they're undergoing with regard to gender dysphoria. So having to actually undergo additional other other procedures to address the procedures that are being used to treat gender dysphoria. Hmm. To me, that seems it seems wrong it, and and there seems to be an ethical problem with that that it that it is self-perpetuating and that it that it seems to be a way through which to profit from people's pain hmm. Hmm. Uh, i'm gonna get into dicey territory uh but it's my podcast so i can do this you probably expect this somewhat why do you care so much what's your what's your mo what, what led you into caring about this because you obviously have a passion about this. 
Well, when I was when I was young, and and you know I'm of of the male sex. When I was when I was young, I was always, and you know I was I was always rather rather feminine and and you know not not very masculine, and and so I I feel concern for so many so many you know little little boys who who were like I was when I was young and who who should who should be able to grow up and grow into their teens and know that know that they can be you know that that they don't have to be masculine and that that they can be you know they can be feminine you know they can they can grow their hair long they can they can paint their nails they can they can wear whatever they want i i want them to have have freedom and have liberty i do not want them to to feel as if you know to feel as if the the alienation that they feel toward their bodies is is the is is all there is it's not all there is hmm. and and so and so i'm speaking really from from experience from having having been in the shoes of you know so many of these young people and you know i wasn't i, I have never been what what is called you know what is called cisgender i've never known what that is i haven't i haven't conformed to to the masculine gender norms i i've never done that hmm. it's so strange to me that people impose these labels uh, like cisgender or transgender and impose them and cisgender means that you that you identify with the gender associated with your sex and transgender presented in opposition to that means that you don't means that you know your your gender identity is not aligned with your with your sex mm-hmm. To me, to me, I think that I think that the the terms themselves are absurd, because because you know cisgender holds up this idea the the concept of cisgender holds up this idea that we all are supposed to adhere to you know that males are supposed to be masculine that females are supposed to be feminine and people who who deviate from that well you might be transgender and you might need pills and procedures. That does not make sense. It it just doesn't make sense. And so I I was concerned about you know about people, particularly children and, and young people who who are who are like I was, and who would who would definitely be who would definitely be prey for this predatory ideology, and that that is that is coming into schools, telling children that they can be born in the wrong bodies. It's preying upon people who are vulnerable, and and it and it's hmm. you know it, it's it's a it's a system of beliefs that is that is geared toward making you know toward engendering alienation in you know in the in the in the minds of young people you know children and young people it, it it's very you know it's it's to me it exemplifies a hatred for for you know what it is to be like to be a human being to you know the the body itself hmm. it is hatred for for the body and 
and it, and it's disturbing that that that's being that that's being sold as you know sold to children and young people as a sort of loving the self that that really that really this this hatred and and not and not loving not not actually feeling fine with your body oh that's fine we'll we'll, we'll fix that here's some pills and procedures and 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 so so that was that was that was how I came I came to be concerned and I came to be concerned not only for not only for people of my sex but you know particularly for for so many girls and and women who who are who already constitute the vast majority of people who undergo cosmetic surgeries and who who with this also even more so are undergoing cosmetic surgeries and and so mm-hmm. it it came off to me as this as this ideology that is that is about you know it's about marketing you know marketing alienation to people as a, you know i suppose as the way through which to actualize the self mm-hmm. so it becomes it becomes you know self self annihilation as self actualization and the destruction, the destruction of, of the body as this sort of like becoming, you know, becoming you, becoming, you know, be, becoming. And, and, and there's, this, there's this way in which it, it, it seems so sinister to me. And that was, that was what, that was what had, had, first, had first driven my concerns. I, I when wanted, did you first come across this? Oh, when? Well, um... Well, ever since I was young, you know, I had I had been, you know, I had been kind of I'd been treated differently. And and, you know, one of the things I remember when I was when I was younger, um, another another, you know, another boy or whatever really like really said he hated my voice because it didn't sound it didn't sound natural. It, it sounded like it came from the wrong like the wrong body, you know, like. Like it, like it, like he, he hated it. And he thought, he thought this sounds, you know, this, you know, because, because part of it was, you know, if, if you're, if you're a male and you have kind of like a, kind of a more feminine sounding voice, it disturbs, it, it disturbs some people. And so with this, with this person, he, he was, he was bothered by it. And, and of course it was homophobic. It was, it was a real hatred for the idea that another, that another male is feminine and that it made him that it made him think like oh so you know so you're one of those and so and so when i you know as i as i grew up i felt i felt interested in issues of of sex gender and sexuality it has been something that i've you know that i've been invested in for years yeah, and and even you know even when i was an undergraduate i was interested in you know in thinking through it and in studying in studying texts such as Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex and and you know and and different and different works from you know from you know lesbian and gay liberation and and these and these sorts this sort of literature as well. I was interested in that even even then and I, I couldn't help but gradually feel more more concerned more concerned about how this ideology as it as it is it 
it mingles together misogyny and homophobia. And they, they come together in a way that in a way that, you know, women women are, are treated women are treated as caricatures or they're treated as less than human. And then with regard to, you know, as I said, with regard to lesbian girls and gay boys, they would be targets. Because when you have, you know, when you have a very masculine lesbian lesbian girl, or when you have a very feminine gay boy, they're they're being conveyed this idea that hmm. Well, something something might be wrong with you. Something might be wrong with you. Maybe you should fix that. Maybe you know. Maybe maybe you should do something about that. And uh, people have seriously underestimated the the way in which the way in which this ideology has has marketed itself and has reproduced and has has captured so many institutions so quickly, so quickly. And and that was that was where that was where my concern first came from. It, it was it was rooted it was rooted in who who I've been as a person, mm-hmm. and and my you know I hate to use the phrase my lived experience, and and so and so uh, of course <laughs> of course it, it it's never been just this this abstract thing to me. It has always been serious. It's it has been it has been life or death, you know, for 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 me and for for the the children and young people whom I whom I see whom I see suffering from distress and whom I think deserve better mental health care. They deserve better better therapeutic practices, you know, such as that of you know Marcus Evans and Susan Evans have have a new book coming out in this this coming April 2021 I believe and their work their work advocates for an exploratory approach that considers you know considers all of the various intertwining factors that that you know that that come together in the lives of children and young people who experience dysphoria and, and who experience what is what is called dysphoria because it is complicated and it is complex and we should not you know we should not be we should not be just just saying oh well everything's okay just 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 keep doing what what's going on because the affirmation standard of care or the affirmative standard of care rather <clears throat> is you know it's it's really it isn't actually to me it, it isn't actually about helping helping children and young people feel more comfortable with their bodies. It, it takes, it takes the born in the wrong body narrative from the beginning as, as, as correct and then follows accordingly. And that's not, that's not a practice that's exploratory. It doesn't actually look at underlying issues and it doesn't look at, you know, it <laughs> seems not to, not to think about, are the pills and the procedures right in every single case? Are are are, are they right in most cases? Yeah. Are they are they right in in the, in the majority or or even half of the cases? And, and if you find out that that it's not really helping a large portion of the people to whom it is it, you know it is being prescribed, it does it does you know it does make you think. Well, we need to reassess it, and we need we need a better model. We need a model that thinks about that thinks about 
the, the complexity of human physiological and psychological development. That is, that is what I want. That, that is what I'm asking for. I'm not, I'm not asking for people to be denied dignity and respect and denied basic human rights. I am talking completely about medicalization. And I'm talking about, I'm talking about, you know, the also, also in a, in a connected sense, you know, this way in which the idea of saying that, that, you know, gender identity can neatly replace sex, how that, how that actually infringes on the rights of women on the basis of sex and the rights of lesbians and gay men on the basis of sex and sexual orientation. Because, because sex is the basis of sexual orientation. And so this idea that homosexuality means it, that it's about gender identity, it completely uproots, uproots it from any material basis. There, there becomes no material basis through which to say, well, you know, we have, we have people who are sexually oriented toward the same sex. Well, if we obliterate the idea of sex as material, and we replace it with gender identity, there is no actual way to protect this group. You, you, can't, you can't actually say like, well, we have this group and we define them by something that nobody can define. Gender identity cannot be defined in an observable way, in, in a measurable way. Mm-hmm. Because of course, you know, you have, when you have gender identity, gender identity is what you say it is. That is that is that is what it is. It, it, you know, if, <laughs> if 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 you if if you say if you say you feel you feel like your gender identity is you know you want you want to be a they them, and you don't even have to extrapolate what you mean by they them. You just say you're a they them. You 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 know you, you say I'm non-binary, and and, and you know you, you can just say it. Doesn't matter. No extrapolation, and you you know there is no there is no material way to to observe that and to know to know what that is to to like to actually measure that there the empiricism there there is no empiricism you know it, it's that you you can't so it <sighs> i want to ask two questions one's loaded and the other one's more broad but it seems like um y- Insofar as you were confronted by resistance from your society, perhaps even resistance uh, within yourself or confusion, it seems like you took an intellectual tact in coping with that. I want to know why you decided to go down that tact, if you did. And I also want to ask the broader question is, if you were talking to yourself or if you're talking to somebody who would be taking care of yourself, such as a teacher, what are some sort of resilient strategies towards dealing with alienation with regards to societal norms and with alienation towards confusion about what you are inside? What, what are the tools of resilience that you came across and that helped you and that you have found are something that, that you could give kids in place of this gender ideology? For me, perhaps why I, why I approached what what I struggled with in life through through reading through reading books was has been rooted in this you know ever since I was young you know I've 
I've read and, and enjoyed literature. And I found and I found that that literature helped me think through, you know, think through life and think through think through what was going on around me and not think that and not and not pretend as if I, you know, I, I am the only thing in the universe and that and <laughs> that and that I that that there is nothing that there is nothing around me. And so ever since I was young. I, I learned to see my life in relation to other people and and how there's a web of connections between and among people. And so it helped me to think about it that way and to think about human beings as interconnected and that the problems that we have are rooted in, you know, are rooted in the, those, you know, relations between and among people. And, and that, so... And that for for me yeah. as as a, as a child, what I would have found helpful would have been for people to teach students in in the most basic way that you know that that all people all people are are human beings deserving of dignity and respect. This this point is fundamental. It requires no political ideology to emphasize this point. It, it you know it, it it relies on it relies on the understanding that that people are human beings. You do not have to emphasize you know like you you don't even have to tell a five year old about the complexities of systems of oppression and of caste systems over the course of thousands of years. This it it that you don't have to say this to a five year old. You can you can talk about the the universal. There's a universal, universal, you know, need for human beings to be treated, you know, in as as human beings, as as you know, as as people deserving of you know of love, of dignity, of respect, and that doesn't mean that you that you always always agree with everything that somebody else says. It doesn't mean that you always agree with everything somebody else says, and. You know, for me, for me, ever since I was I was younger, I felt I've felt as if you know, as if reading and reading different things and and reading you know reading reading books that that are you know that that are old as well as new. I, I enjoy it. You know, I I I do I I love reading, and so so reading reading for me has been a way of thinking through differing differing viewpoints and not and not sealing myself into into my perspective or just one point of view on the world it seems to me as if one of the problems facing our country politically is this way in which people have become entombed inside of their own heads that that it's that it's as if you know that that you can't actually think about how how another how another human being feels or or looks at the world and hmm. and this is you know you can you can look at you know you can look at you know th- think of racism you know through through a structural analysis and this sort of thing and do the same with sexism and do the same with capitalism all of that, but 
But in a very fundamental sense, there is a failure to think about people, people as individuals and people as, as human beings, as fallible human beings, fallible. That means, you know, that you have flaws, that, that you're, that you're, that you, we are not perfect creatures either. You know, that, that we're not, we're not supposed to be perfect. And we're also not, not supposed to, not supposed to always love our bodies and feel and feel great all the time. And, you know, it's, I mean, I mean, if that was, if that was the, if that was the standard for life, I'm quite sure most of us would just be dead, uh, you know, because, because I, you know, I think, I think that, I think that really life is, life is about this, this mixture of, you know, of the elements of, of good and of bad of, you know, of, of pleasure, of pain. And, and so there's not this, you know, and I think, I think that it, it speaks to the kind of, the kind of way in which we've, you know, we've treated discomfort as, as pathological and and that for me for me my discomfort it it never made me want to flee it didn't make me want to flee from reality it made me it made me think how can i strategize and work against you know work against this reality that that is and kind of and forge myself against it and so so to to actually to be the individual that you are going against, you know, going and, and being able to use the force of circumstance to your benefit as, as an individual that this, this I think is, is valuable. It, you know, it's, it's, and it's, it's not, you know, and it isn't to say that there's not, there, there are not social systems that are, that are harmful for people. Hmm. That's not, that's not to say that, that it's not to deny that. But it is also that we shouldn't we shouldn't ever say that you know there there is no such thing as as an individual either and and, and I think that that there are problems with with seeing everything from from one perspective or another such that it erases it erases the you know the the broadness of of what would be a diverse human experience hmm. so Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.